frustrated, they're anxious, they're heartbroken. Running for re-election in a pandemic, a Miami-Dade congressional race getting national attention. There we go, going to another home. And a Broward GOP candidate looking to unseat a veteran Democrat. Uh, we don't know how many students will be in our classrooms. We believe that this is pressure from the governor. The scramble for schools to open divides the districts. I will be signing an order to allow the openings of certain indoor spaces uh, if they are ready. Even as more indoor spaces get the green light. I was furious that my ballot wasn't counted. The ballot blunder by the post office, a singular mistake raising serious concern. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We have a packed hour ahead and we begin with a South Florida race for Congress with national attention. Congresswoman Debbie Mukarsel Powell running for a second term and challenged by outgoing Miami-Dade Mayor Carlos Jimenez, all to represent the people of the 26th Congressional District from Kendall to Key West. Congresswoman, good morning. Great good, to see you. Good, good, good morning, morning Glenn. Good morning, Michael. We're so glad you are with us. Let's begin with the obvious place, which is the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the fact the president seems intent on moving very quickly here. Senator Mitchell says there will be a Senate vote. What is your reaction to the speed at which they are moving to uh, replace her? Yes, Michael, first of all, let me just say that it's a heartbreaking loss for this country. We're all mourning the death of this incredible, brilliant legal scholar who dedicated her entire life to fight for justice for all Americans, for men, for women. Um, I, I can't tell you how important it is for us to understand how much higher the stakes are now in this election, because what this means is uh, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing the case to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And in my district, as I've said many times, we have close to 100,000 people that get their health care through the ACA, 300,000 individuals living with pre-existing conditions that have coverage because of the ACA and uh, rushing for a nominee and politicizing this process is just going to be extremely dangerous for our health care system, especially now during a pandemic. But, you know, what I think is interesting is that the Senate is rushing to bring a vote to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And yet they have done absolutely nothing for three months as we've been trying to negotiate another package to provide relief for so many families here in my district that need that assistance, small businesses that keep calling us that need further relief. So I would ask the Senate Republicans to rush back into the Senate chambers to actually bring a vote on the HEROES Act. So I just want to go on record and say something that we learned here that I learned this morning is that in the history, the American history of these kind of situations where there is a Supreme Court opening in a presidential year, whenever there is a president and a Senate of the same party, that kind of rush is has always been done the majority of the time. So I just, I just wanted to throw that out there. Congresswoman, let's talk about your district a little bit. District 26 is considered right now a toss up um, and kind of is all the time because it's such a yeah. split district yeah. and now there are so many independents voting that didn't vote in the primaries and so you we were talking this morning one of the criticisms we hear about you as a member of congress is that you are pretty partisan and that you vote a straight democratic line how is that going to play when you appeal or try to appeal to your constituents to reelect you 
Yeah, Glenna, look, uh, I, I've spent my career, I didn't come from politics, right? I spent 20 years of my career working here in this district, mostly at FIU as the associate dean at the medical school. And so I don't play political games and these ratings, th those are attacks are false. I have actually established very close relationships with some of my Republican colleagues, Representative Francis Rooney. We've co-led different bills to protect our coral reefs. I worked very closely with Representative Brian Mass so that we can pass legislation to support Everglades restoration, and we were very successful doing that. Um, so those attacks are completely false. What I have done is dedicate the almost two years that I have served in office in my first term here in Congress working for the families, really bringing down results, passing $200 million for Everglades restoration, passing legislation that would provide safety to our communities that are affected by gun violence. Um, we passed several bills to reduce premiums for the ACA, to reduce the pricing of prescription drug prices. Those are the, the bills that I have been voting for. So I would tell my voters, um, everyone in the district, to not really listen to these desperate false attacks because they do this to misinform, to confuse Go and look at my record, and you'll see what I stand for, and I will continue to fight for the people in my community. Yeah, Congressman, one of the things that uh, Mayor Carlos Jimenez, your Republican opponent, has said to me and said repeatedly throughout the campaign is <laughs> that one of the key differences, the way you differently, you see the world differently, you went to the Homestead Detention Center. Uh, you called it um, a, a really abominable place, that it was wrong, that children who were there, a couple thousand at one point, were not being treated well. Uh, Mayor Jimenez went in, spoke privately with some children, and he came out and he said, there is nothing there that makes me ashamed to be an American. Boy, there couldn't be two more different points of view about the same thing. Yes, Michael, look, yes, we see the world in completely different ways. I'm a mom and I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 14. And when I visited the Homestead Detention Facility, I, I always thought it would get just a little easier. And it was never easier to see and talk to so many kids, many of them that had been separated from their grandmothers at the border, seeking asylum, fleeing violent regimes, asking for help. And these kids had been held there for months, Michael. And it was being run by a for-profit company and, you know, the, the former chief of staff of President Donald Trump, John Kelly, was on the board of that company. They were actually making thousands of dollars by filling those beds in this detention facility. And my stance was always to reunite those children with their families here in the United States, with their sponsors. I even said, look, if their parents are in, if they had already been deported, they wanted to be with their parents. Those, what child doesn't want to be with their parents? Congresswoman, yeah. in that particular facility, those, just in that facility, those were unaccompanied teens. Those That's were not what they, people separated Glenna, at the border. They, 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 no, no, no. Believe me when I tell you. We have evidence. Please. I would not say something that is not true. I spoke to children. I spoke to immigration attorneys. Not all of them were separated. Many of them were separated. They had family members here. They, they had separated them from either their grandparents or their parents or their older uh, siblings, some of them. And I, I mean, I have details on many of the stories. So yes, they were separated at the border. That that's, is a fact. I, I would not mislead. Okay, that's information that, that we did not have here. Yeah. Um, can, yeah. Let's go back to something that you were talking about, the HEROES Act, this next relief package passed in mm -hmm. the House in May. 
One of the questions that we face as, as news reporters from people is all of the people who need this relief still, the businesses, the people, families, are questioning on down the road, how is Congress looking to pay and fund this without running up this enormous deficit? Yeah. The, the, the line is our grandchildren are gonna pay for it. What is the discussion that you have with your colleagues when you vote for this kind of thing and how to pay for it? Yeah, look, um, I think that it's very important for us to remember that we are going through the worst health crisis that has caused an economic recession um, to the levels of the Great Depression. And the federal chairman has, and top economists, have asked Congress to act swiftly. Because if we don't inject this capital right now into our economy, we're gonna see uh, a very devastating result to our economy. Talk to any small business owner that lives here in, in South Florida. Um, and, and let's remember, the Republicans, before I took office, when they had control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, passed a bill to reduce taxes for huge corporations that added $1 trillion to the deficit. They didn't have any problems adding to the deficit then. But meanwhile, when we have seniors who don't know how they're gonna get their next meal, kids that are going hungry, one in five kids right now in America are going to bed hungry. Schools that need funding to get the resources to protect the teachers, staff, kids, so that we can send our kids back to school safely. Um, we need to continue to expand testing, Glenna. As we start to reopen, in order for us to contain the virus, we need to make sure that if there are any outbreaks, we test, we immediately quarantine those that have the virus so that we can continue to open businesses and schools. We can't go back to closing everything down, but we need resources to do that. And the reality is we have a pandemic and we need to do that. Yeah. yeah let, let me jump in here. We, don't, we just have a little time left. Let me just tell you a little personal anecdote. We were out to dinner last night with a very nice couple recently moved from Boston. They said, who's gonna be on your show tomorrow? And I said, Debbie Mukasel Powell. And this wonderful woman, Fran said, DMP, don't mess with my people. <laughs> So, I, I you guess, know, I, I'm very protective are, of my people. That, that, that's all I can tell you. And who who is trying to mess with your people? Um, well, we have a, a president in the White House that has been attacking immigrants from the very beginning, criminalizing us, dehumanizing us. Those are my people. Uh, our children who need the resources to be protected from this pandemic, those are my kids. Uh, my the, the District 26 for me, for years has been like my family. I have been very close to people all over the Keys, our fishermen, our farmers, our teachers, our, our community leaders. They're my family and may I, that's uh, why. May, I, may yeah. I put you on the spot real quick? Carlos Jimenez has agreed to debate right here with us on the 25th of October. Will yep. you join us? Listen, I am so ready to debate Carlos Jimenez. I have I've actually already accepted three other debates and he has refused to answer. So. Let's let's bring it on, Carlos. I'm ready. Okay, okay October 25th. We, yeah. we will see you and hey, Mary Jimenez then. Put it on the calendar. <laughs> Thanks so much, Congresswoman. Thank, Thank you very you. much. So Appreciate it. All right, next we'll look at one of Broward's congressional races coming up later in the program. But next, the fight and fear over reopening local schools. The teachers' union presidents in both Miami-Dade and Broward will join us live when we come back.
Students, teacher, and school staff members in South Florida soon are going to be going back into their school buildings. The school boards in both Broward and Miami-Dade are going to take up the question next week. Both counties are actually targeting early October, which is just a couple of weeks away, and both face fear debates from all sides on that, and some of the most significant voices are those who lead the teachers' unions in both counties. And with us today via Skype, Broward Teachers Union President Anna Fusco from Tamarack and United Teachers of Dade President Carla Hernandez-Matz from Miami. Great to see you both. Hey, Thanks good for morning, giving up ladies. a little Sunday for us. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you? We're great to see you. Let me begin with perhaps the most basic question, one I have been wondering about. Here in a couple of weeks, uh, there will be schools opening and uh, maybe 50% or more of kids will be going back, they expect to have teachers there. Are the teachers in a position where they are mandated either go to the school and teach, both in person and online, or you're out of a job, or you've got to retire, or you'll be furloughed? What's, Carla, what's the situation? So our situation here um, has been more, thought, more thoughtful in that sense. Um, you know, we have teachers that have applied for ADA. There's accommodations that we're trying to give those teachers to pair them up with students that are going to continue to stay virtual so that they can stay, they can remain in that virtual environment. Um, we know that the research and science does, shows that there is actually uh, more harm to a student if you have a teacher that's doing dual modalities, both in person and virtual, because it's too much. Uh, you're not effective in any in any way you, you have to do one or the other and so uh, we're not going to ask our teachers to do that um, we're going to make sure that they're either teaching in person or they're teaching online and that uh, what we're really asking for is safeguards for everyone safeguards for students safeguards for teachers because at the end of the day that's sure. going to be the safeguard to our community we don't want to regress we want to make sure that health was, and safety are there yeah of course anna that was actually in a memo from uh, that broward teachers are receiving either you're going to be back in the classroom it looks like october 5th or else consider taking leave Can, is that is that a sort of something that you saw in in print is that true right it's something we heard first and it went in print and now we're having strong conversations where um, we're, we're trying to get a, a, a better understanding of exactly what the district wants from our educators and all support staff. It was matter of fact, come back into the school sites and teach from your classroom with uh, students face to face or take a leave. Uh, they are offering uh, accommodations. It's exactly what type of accommodations they're willing to give and what they're willing to accept of what is a severe health condition. It's, that is a little bit of our battle. Um, we have a, a board workshop September 22nd that Superintendent Runcie has made clear that everything will be laid out, all the understanding will be laid out. The only difference when our teachers come back in to school site campuses working face-to-face -face with the students, it will still be considered online for everybody. Whether you physically come into a school site or you continue to stay at home, you will be uh, working through your computer, through our Canvas platform, uh, with the student, with the teacher in the classroom, and as Carl is doing over in Dade, we're trying to work with those capabilities. If teachers need to be remote for health reasons, and there are plenty of students that are remote, let's team up the students remote with the teacher remote, and the teachers that are willing to be back in the classroom setting to be with those students face to face. It's a, it's still a considerable work in progress. Um, we're going to be uh, having an open negotiations tomorrow where all can see and hear exactly what our ask, wants, and needs are for our educators and support staff uh, with the district. 
Anna, just to be absolutely clear about this, say October 5th for elementary K-8 kids, uh, let's say a fourth grader, uh, the class begins in school and maybe there are 14 or 15 kids in the classroom and then maybe 12 or 13 or 14 more at home. Is the teacher expected to teach both the kids in the classroom and the kids online? Is that happening simultaneously? Well, it's it's simultaneously, but the students, since we're still in phase two, are still going to be considered. Everything will be touchless, paperless. They will still be, as they would be sitting home with the caretaker or a parent or in a pod or somewhere in a, in a, in a health, uh, not a health care, a daycare setting, that they will still be expected to be sitting in their seats in the classroom setting behind a computer. Carla, I, I want to, I'm just going to put this out there. We get reams of emails from frightened, concerned, I don't, I don't yeah. want to characterize it, teachers who won't speak up for fear of reprisals and retaliations. That is a fact. And I just want to put out there some of the things that we're hearing from them this week. Um, from an email, class size is a farce. Carla, that's from a Miami-Dade teacher who is frantic that 30 or more students are going to mm -hmm. be in a classroom come October. And, and I know the district is doing a lot to try to make it as safe as possible, but 33 kids and a teacher in a classroom the size of a classroom without plastic shields is a daunting thing to think about. Can you address that? Are, are you hearing those things? Glenna, we're hearing precisely that. And so that is one of our major concerns. We understand that face-to-face -face instruction is by far the best type of instruction. And our educators are exhausted. I mean, this virtual teaching and learning has been so taxing on us. Uh, it's really um, elongated our work hours. I mean, it's just with the failure of the platform. I mean, there's just so many things. I know that our teachers much rather prefer being face-to-face, -face, but they want to do it under safe conditions. And what you're describing right now, a class roster with over 30 students is not safe. And so we're asking for the bare minimum. We're not asking for the moon. I mean, we are asking that we do things in a very mindful way so that we don't rush and so that we don't regress as a community. Miami is the epicenter of the state of Florida. If we do not um, get this right, my fear is that we are going to lose lives. And it, it's not gonna be because I didn't fight for that. You know, I am fighting for every single child in every classroom. I'm fighting for all of my colleagues, the teachers, the parents, the custodians, everybody that works and is part of the educational community. And so we have to get this right. And so what we're saying is let's do it, but let's do it properly. Let's have six feet of social distancing. Let's have small class sizes. Let's make sure that the proper PPE and ventilation are in every single one of those rooms because we know that we haven't met all eight criteria. Dr. Marty was part of this medical experts panel this past week, and she said that as a district, we have met six out of the eight. We yeah. can't cut corners and we can't shortchange our students. Yeah. Uh, Anna Fusco, let me ask you about health issues. When children come back, literally, physically, into the schools, will their temperatures be taken? Uh, will they be asked every day, do you have a cold, do you feel all right? And who will be doing that, the teacher, a nurse, or some other member of the staff? Who's going to check their health? And then the other part of the question is, will parents be notified if any child in their, class, their child's class tests positive, will the parents be notified about it? 
Okay. Well, checking temperatures has not been established yet if our district is going to take on that ginormous uh, task of taking temperatures, but it has been spoken that they're going to be making that clear of asking parents and all employees to pay attention to your health. If you feel like you've got some type of conditions that could possibly be COVID, you know, please stay home. And they will be um, notifying if somebody does test positive, uh, the tracing that they're going to be able to take care of uh, in a classroom or in a school setting. We haven't gotten the clear answers if we're going to close down just a classroom or close down the whole possible site. Um, but our district has also committed to making sure that every school has a nurse on site, uh, a nurse on site and having a isolation room if, if potentially students are on campus and start to exhibit some of those, um, you know, uh, signs and so forth or feeling ill until they're able to get a parent or a caretaker to come and pick them up. There are a lot of devils in the details still to work out. It is, we, yeah. you have our word. We will be watching this this week with you, and we invite you to keep in touch and keep us in touch yeah. with what's going on on the ground there. Anna Fusco and Broward, Carlo Henares, Matt's in Dade. Thank you so much for being there, with us. There, there is no story we are following more closely than reopening the schools. Ladies, thanks. All right, next, back to congressional races, one in Broward. Meet the Republican candidate running to stop Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz from winning her eighth term. Next. If you are a regular viewer of our program, you know that in pre-pandemic days, we held the round table right here around this table, the guests live in our studio. And you also know that our round table is now virtual and today we have a lot on the plate for our round table and with us today, Carlos Lopez Cantera, Florida's Lieutenant Governor in the Rick Scott administration, also former member of the State House, LTCLC, I made that up. <laughs> and Bernadette Norris Weeks, an attorney in Fort Lauderdale and an engaged civic activist, back with us. Great to see you both. Thanks for being aboard. Not a round table, well, but I, get, now I don't see you, but great it's to in be little with you. You're in little squares. It's the square <laughs> table. Carlos, for we're, we're delighted to have you join us, and uh, it'll be the first of many times, I hope. Uh, Bernadette, let me begin with you as a successful black woman attorney. Uh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who fought and made policies that helped you achieve what you have achieved. What is your feeling here on the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? I think it's a tragic loss, not just for female lawyers like myself, who she helped has helped to pave the path for, but also for all of society. I mean, she has just done so much in her lifetime for human rights, for civil rights, for rights for everyone. And, um, and I think it's just a tragic loss. And I hope that we will um, take a deep breath um, as a country, honor her legacy, and spend um, a minute to do that before we rush into um, the next steps of uh, being partisan and what, you know, how we replace her. That, that actually seems, doesn't it, to be going on as we speak. America is mourning a national legal legend, an icon, and at the same time going through the process, the American process of replacing that vacancy. And this morning, Carlos Lopez Cantera, we learned that uh, Florida, Florida's Judge Barbara Lagoa, who was the first Hispanic woman on Florida's Supreme Court that Governor DeSantis appointed 
it seems like yesterday, but it was January 2019, and now is on President Trump's list for that uh, possible for that vacancy. What do you think about that? Is that um, you know, someone from Florida, someone with Cuban American roots? Aside from the justice that she is, that certainly would be an interesting political pick for President Trump. Well, first let me say Bernadette put it actually very well. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a trailblazer, and we should take a moment to first honor her legacy and her achievements and the opportunities that she created for, for women throughout this country. I'm the father of two uh, little girls, and I'm glad that they live in a country that uh, the rights that they have were helped uh, by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, that being said, Barbara Lagoa is a, an accomplished jurist, and she would be a phenomenal pick uh, for, the, for the court. And uh, we'll see what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, what she was, let's just, for anyone who isn't aware, she was a, she's raised in Hialeah. She served as a Miami-Dade Circuit Court judge, then went to the Third District Court of Appeal, then went to the State Supreme Court, and then uh, she was appointed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta, a meteoric rise for a very well-respected judge. Um, Carlos uh, Lopez-Quintero, uh, it appears the president has said very clearly he wants to move forward quickly. We've got a little soundbite from the president last night. Let's, let's take a listen. I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman. So, uh, Colonel, he, he says he is constitutionally, it is his obligation to move forward quickly. And uh, uh, I, I think that's really fairly indisputable. Question is, how quickly? Before the election? Uh, what, what, do you, what about a timetable? Well, there is no timetable. Uh, in the Constitution uh, that I'm aware of, it is the president's prerogative to nominate, and it's the Senate's job to confirm. Now, you know, going back just four short years ago to when uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away, you had a lot on the a lot of uh, senators on the left who said one thing, and a lot of senators on the right who said another thing. And now that it seems like they each side has switched their their messaging. So uh, you know, this is just the 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 hip hypocrisies that you see in politics all yeah. too often these days. That, that's such a that's such a fascinating process because, you know, one of the people you're talking about, Mitch McConnell, Senate leader, was one of the people four years ago who said, oh, let the people decide and they pick a new president. And now, of course, today he's ready to go to okay. pick a, a new nominee. But Bernadette, what we were talking about this this morning, we learned this morning that that's actually exactly what precedent is in American history when a president and the Senate are the same party. It, it's playing out the same way it always does, even though to Carlos's point, it seems so hypocritical. Can weigh in on that? Well, it's hypocritical mostly really on the uh, Republican side because they were the people who were saying um, just the opposite. And what's what's really troubling is the fact that um, you know you have a Mitch McConnell who basically makes a read my lips type statement and then comes back and everything's fine. And I think it just gives a really sour taste in the eyes of the American public who are already so distrustful of government and and elected officials, particularly uh, those in Congress. 
Um, I don't think this bodes well for the Republican Party um, in this election, where we have a lot of highly contested races and in a lot of swing states, uh, just like Florida. Yeah. So I think that um, certainly um, Rick Scott, uh, Marco Rubio as senators and our governor need to really think about their messaging because we're, um, you know, we have a, a very, um, the, right now Joe Biden's ahead in Florida. Everybody knows that. And this is one state that while the president um, has to win it, um, Joe Biden, you know, really does have other options to. Does, does uh, Joe Biden have a nominee list? Might, might you be privy to that? Well, I don't think that anybody is privy to it because I don't think he's released anything. But um, at the same time, I don't think it, it's incumbent upon him to, to release anything. I think it was really poor taste on the part of the president to release the nominee, a nominee list for the Supreme Court when there wasn't a vacancy. And uh, and I think that's, um, you know, really a poor taste. And that just, you know, goes to show, um, you know, what we're looking at in this bitter state of politics in, uh, in our country. Yeah, Colonel. Well, with just, all due respect to, yes, go to ahead. Bernadette, uh, there's there's hypocrisy on the on the Democratic side, too, because just as many senators who said there should not be a confirmation in 2016, there were just as many senators in the Democratic Party saying that there should. And now. The roles have reversed. So it, it's not one party that's being hypocritical. It's both. And to the issue of releasing a list, President Trump released that list when there was a vacancy in 2016, and he only recently added some names to it. Now, the dynamic between 2016 and 2020, the differences are, back then, there was a different party in control in the Senate than there was in the White House. This year, there is the same party in control in the White House and in the Senate. And another thing that really is the only logical reason uh, that I've heard lately to do a confirmation before the election is that if the election is contested and it ends up in the Supreme Court with a 4-4 split, you could have a, a, a deadlock in the Supreme Court, which could lead to a constitutional crisis, which I don't think anybody is, uh, is in favor of right now. No, uh, and well, just to I sort of, if I can, just to sort of tie this little discussion up here, uh, Bernadette and Carlos, I want you both to comment you know, it appears it's, it's probable, maybe, even that a vote on whoever is nominated is going to come during the lame duck Congress, uh, that is to say, after the November 3rd election. And there are going to be some members of the Senate who are going to be voting who may have been defeated but are still in office. Now, that's not a good thing, is it? No, it is not a good thing. And that's why it would be um, really in the best interest of this country to honor um, uh, the Supreme Court Justices um, Ginsburg's last wish by allowing there to be a process and a replacement um, uh, when the new president comes in and is installed. And I think that is really the, the, the right thing to do here. Now, um, I want to go back just a second and just sort of address the um, the issue of this party affiliate, uh, the, you know, the parties, the same parties were in office and, and that kind of thing. This is a spin job right now that the Republicans are doing. And it's no, nothing was said about that at that time. That was not the rationale that was used. Um, it wasn't. Um, it was just clear that, you know, we should wait and, um, you know, we should be able to, um, well, we should be able to go ahead and appoint this nominee. Bernadette, I apologize. I don't really want to relitigate a a uh, uh, issue from 2016. We want to move on. So everybody keep your places. Uh, we'll be back with more roundtable in just a minute.
are back with our virtual roundtable. Bernadette Norris Weeks, Carlos Lopez Cantera on the Square Boxes. I want to bring it back local a little bit. Bernadette, uh, you used to represent Broward Supervisor of Elections. So I'm guessing you have a little bit of insight into elections and mail-in ballots. And something happened this week that really piqued a lot of people's concerns. And that is a Miami Beach resident who did everything right, voted by mail seven weeks in advance, never got her vote counted because this ballot was returned to sender just this week. Uh, and we find out that it was a post office carrier's human error. So the Miami-Dade Elections Headquarters was really surprised by this, called it an anomaly. This has never happened before, but boy, at a time when a lot of people are worried about the post office, what are we to think about mail-in voting that everyone really wants people to know is very safe? I mean, how do we reconcile something like that? Right. Mail-in voting is very safe, despite, you know, what you're hearing in terms of overtures from the White House. It is very safe. You can vote with confidence um, as long as you get it in on time. And, and not speaking specifically about this particular person, but many times what we've found um, in election offices is that you will have a resident who says that they mailed their ballot at a certain time and maybe it wasn't mailed. And so, um, or they mailed it a little late and they want you to somehow flag it and it's not quite in the system. But the, the technology will track the um, mail-in ballots once they get into the supervisors of elections offices and they will be able to tell you, you know, when it came in and what part of the process they're, they're in to be processed. Right, and so, that, that actually works really well to your point but in the post office, the U.S. post office yeah. says this did happen and this was human error. So all right. of those things in place failed to prevent yeah. a screw up by a human being. Right. And that can happen. I mean, no election is perfect. And although we would like for it to be, especially in these large counties like Miami-Dade County and Broward, where you're getting hundreds of, you know, thousands of ballots that are coming in um, and going out, uh, there could be a human error. So this is one of those unusual cases. The supervisor in that county said she's never seen anything like it. And the post office said the same. So I, you know, we, we can't really expect that. I am worried about other things happening um, around elections. Elections. And as we get closer, you know, lawsuits get filed the night of the election, um, before the election, things happen where the, you know, one party or whatever is trying to slow down the election and then sues that it didn't go fast enough. And so you have all of those things that you can look forward to. Don't forget about the felons issue right before the 2000 election. Don't forget about um, uh, Governor Scott at the time and 2012 about non-citizens and purging voters and, and you know so these are the kind of things that I think we have to keep um, a high alert for and make sure that our supervisors offices are not being um, uh, asked to do things that are not proper and and I think in 2012 for instance the supervisors of elections all over the state were very very cautious about doing anything that would uh, purge the voters from the rolls and I hope they're working together again on that. Yeah, uh, Carlos, this situation, which Glenna reported on excellent reporting, it appears to be a one-off, but for people who maybe have lost some confidence in mail-in voting, it certainly would shake anybody's confidence to see a legitimate voter cast a ballot by mail and the ballot be undeliverable. Really terrible situation. Look, nobody wants to be judged, nor does any organization want to be judged on their worst day. 
But man, the post office really picked a bad time to have their worst day Boy, when it comes to, to this particular ballot. That being said, um, the supervisor of elections in this state are, have done and will continue to do a good job. Uh, absentee ballot voting or mail-in voting in Florida is something that has been uh, working very well for many years. Every year, the legislature, every couple of years, the legislature makes it even better to ensure that anybody that wants to cast a vote has the opportunity to cast a vote. And you've seen it in, in the returns. You've had consistently more and more uh, voter turnout. And yeah. if you look at what happened in the primaries in August, you had a, a record-setting amount of votes by mail. So, uh, yeah, this was a one-off, I think. I do think uh, Glenna did a good job, but it does cast doubt. Even the, the voter that was quoted in the story said that she's not going to mail the ballot this time, and she's going to go and deliver it herself. So, yeah. you know, it's up to each individual to do what they think is right. Uh, what they really need to do is just ensure they vote. And uh, there's many ways and plenty of opportunities to vote in Florida. You can vote by mail. You can go early voting. You can vote in person on Election Day. There's clearly no lack of options to vote yeah. in Florida. It's just a matter of going to vote. Absolutely. And we should point out a little attaboy for the U.S. Postal Service in Broward County. They delivered more than 1,200 mail-in ballots, which had sort of piled up late in the afternoon of August 18th. They got them to the Broward Elections Department by 7 p.m. So, you know, kudos to them for that one. But, you know, it's their bad for the one that Glenna reported on. Anyway, hold your positions, everybody. Stay put. We'll be back with more Roundtable in just a minute. We are in the midst of a really good roundtable with Bernadette Norris-Weeks and Carlos Lopez-Cantera, not only the former lieutenant governor, also a state legislator, and for briefly, a the property appraiser in Miami-Dade County. He's done many things. Um, uh, Carlos, let me begin by asking you about something which didn't get a lot of attention. The Miami Herald certainly gave it attention, and that was the nomination this week by Governor Ron DeSantis of Jamie Grosshands, a judge in Central Florida, to the state Supreme Court. As you, we all know, the nomination of uh, uh, Renetha Francis failed because she had not been a member of the bar for 10 years. Well, here's the story. It turns out, thanks to good reporting by Mary Ellen Kloss of the Miami Herald, the judge Grosshands secretly belongs to a group called the Alliance for Defending Freedom whose mission is to, quote, spread the gospel by transforming the legal system. And I don't know, it seems to raise questions about separation of church and state. And why didn't the governor know about this? I don't know. What, what's your opinion here? Well, I'm unfamiliar with that reporting, so I hesitate to comment on it. Um, I do know that the JNC process is responsible for vetting candidates and recommending to the governor and then the governor's general counsel typically does uh, vetting of their own. Um, but on this particular item, I'm unfamiliar with the story, so I, I, okay. I really can't comment on it. Fair enough. How about you, Bernadette? Are, did you follow this? Are you aware of this? Well, I, I think, first of all, that it's not something that wasn't unknown. And, um, and while um, the JNC process um, does vet candidates, 
um, the governor is now appointing all of the JNC members, which is different from how it used to be years ago. And a lot of lawyers are trying to change that, but that seems to be not something that the governor wants to do. So I think that um, in terms of how this well, all the Florida was, bar, the Florida bar does yeah. uh, does appoint a couple members to that JNC yeah, too. Three members. It's not it's not exclusively mm -hmm. the governor. Yeah. Okay. Well, this this whole process was botched from the beginning. There are so many qualified. African-American um, women and men um, judges, if the governor really wanted to appoint somebody, even there are some conservative people he could have looked at. And so for this to go this far in this process and, and have a nominee that now the governor says he just didn't know about the background of this nominee, and they do extensive background checks on these people, I don't believe it. You know, Last week on this program, we actually discussed what happened with Judge Francis and the fact that aside from the diversity of the court, the actual rules of appointing judges and justices are spelled out and, and she had not been a member of the Florida Bar long enough to fit into those rules. We talked all about that last week. Um, also last week, after the governor went and was mandated to make another pick, he said he was suggesting to the president that Judge Francis be appointed to the federal bench. Yeah. Weigh in on that, if you would, Bernadette. No, I mean, look, I, I'm, I think elections have consequences. And so I'm a firm believer in that. And when your party is, is in power, um, especially, you know, with the Republican Party, they go all in and they don't care. The rules don't matter and they go all in. So I, I can't weigh in on, a, on a one way or the other. I hear that she's a lovely woman, um, uh, Judge um, Francis. I, I don't know her personally, so I, you know, I wish the best for her. Good that um, maybe the president may consider some uh, diverse uh, candidate for the federal bench. That, that would be a good thing um, and, uh, and a welcome um, change. All right, CLC and Bernadette Norris-Weeks, we're very glad you joined us, and uh, uh, we will see you soon in the future on the roundtable. Hopefully tuned. in person. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Take care. We'll be right back. All right, if you're paying attention, you know we were hoping to have Carla Spaulding on with us. She is a Republican candidate for District 23. Uh, this is a little behind-the-scenes COVID virtual glitch. She never answered her Skype today. We were so hoping to have her on. So we apologize to you that we were unable to do that because, Ms. Spaulding, you need to answer your Skype. Right. It is live TV, and it's got to happen. Anyway, we're glad you're with us today. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday. Get online. We're always there. Local10.com. Take care. This is a Local 10 editorial with WPLG President Bert Medina. Do you want your voice to be heard? On Tuesday, November 3rd, we will elect the president, members of Congress, local mayors, and other officials. And you have no say in the process if you're not registered to vote. If you're a U.S. citizen and 18 years of age and older, you have until October 5th to register. Doing so is easy. You can do it online, by mail, at local libraries, or other governmental offices. For a complete list of how and where, visit local10.com. Voting is a right and a responsibility. Register to vote. Then on election day, do your part to cast your ballot. Of course, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Let's continue it. 
on Local10.com. This has been a Local10 editorial. We encourage the presentation of contrasting points of view.